as I begin. So we are, again, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So, that's the account we're going to look at today. Now the Bible, it, it, it doesn't shy away from creating conflict in our hearts and our minds as we read it. These conflicts will often challenge us and cause us to think and reflect on what all of Scripture teaches so that we may understand what God's intended meaning and intended application of Scripture is apart from our man-made traditions, apart from what we kind of assume as we read. And if we think about what we have just read and what we heard last week in Genesis uh, chapter 2, if you, if you really start to examine what we've read in these passages, I know for me, when I first started reading the Bible, it was a little uncomfortable. Something wasn't quite sitting right with me as I read it. Um, if, if, let's just rewind a little bit to Genesis chapter 2, and let me just remind you uh, of what Mark talked about a little bit last week. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 said, And out of, the, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So great, God created the tree of life that man could live forever. Forever, that's, that's awesome. I can get behind that and say, amen, make more trees like that. But then he made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? What, why, why would God make a tree like this? And, and how does this tree provide some kind of knowledge? How does that work? What does it even mean? Well, the scriptures don't give us a plain explanation as to what the purpose of this forbidden tree was or what purpose it served in the paradise of Eden. But it does tell us that he placed it in the midst of the garden with the tree of life. God forbade Adam and Eve from eating from it, and if they did, they would die. Now, at that point, before the fall, I'm not sure if Adam would have even understood what this concept of death would mean. As Mark talked about last week, maybe God explained it to him and that conversation wasn't necessarily recorded in Scripture. But still, Adam had no actual experience with pain or suffering, let alone death, or even spiritual death. Now we, on this side of the fall, we experience death every day in that we uh, feel our bodies dying, we see other people dying, Adam had not seen any of that. So Adam may not have understood what death really meant. So how can he thus be accountable when he may not have understood the extent of the consequences? Well, he, he did know that God forbade him from eating of this tree. God forbade him from eating of this tree, even though he may not have understood what the consequences were. And shouldn't that be enough? Therein lies the, the application for us. Firstly, before I go there, many, many will protest that um, their sin is not that bad and it is therefore not deserving of, of hell. But in so doing, if we, if we are to say that our sin is not that bad or that Adam's sin was not that bad, uh, it shows we have really no idea of the far-reaching effects of sin and what it means to a holy God. He's outside. So, do we need to understand? We need to under, do we know? Do we need to understand what the consequences of sin 
actually are for us to be accountable to God for our sin? That's a question. Do unbelievers understand the full scope of what awaits them in hell? Of course not. We have, we have some grasp, but we really don't understand it. But God still holds un, unbelievers accountable for their sin, even though they don't believe in or understand what hell is. So then, should we as Christians only not sin because we understand what the consequences of our sin are? Should that be our motivation for not sinning because we understand the consequences? Or should we not sin because our God and Creator, whom we claim to love, commanded us not to sin? As Christians, what is our motive for not sinning? That's an important question that we as Christians need to examine ourselves with. What is our motive? Are we striving somehow to make ourselves right with God still and, and, and get our path into heaven? Or are we doing it because we are we repenting of sin because of our love for God? Um, have we repented um, of sin and come to Christ out of a fear of hell or out of a love of Christ? And do we continue, after coming to faith in Christ, to strive for obedience to God out of a fear of hell or out of a love of Christ? For me, and I think for many Christians, we initially come to the cross out of a fear of hell. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what drives us to the cross, and that's okay, I think. God clearly uses condemna condemnation language to draw people to himself initially out of our fallen spiritual state. Psalm 7.12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That is condemnation language. If you don't repent, God's going to bring his wrath on you. And this is one example of many of God using the fear of his wrath to draw men to, his re to repentance, to new life in Christ. New life in Christ. And remember, our new life in Christ is created by God, symbolically, out of what came out of Christ's side. You remember, we talked a little bit about this last week when we made uh, Eve from the rib of, of Adam's side. In that same picture, he has created the church out of what? The, blood, the, the atoning blood of Christ and the sanctifying living water that is symbolized in what came out of Christ when he died on the cross. So that's, and that's really what I'm getting to is that, yeah, there is an atonement of, of the blood that, that speaks of God's wrath coming down upon him that sets us free from the condemnation of our sin. But then in our walk, there is that living water that is changing us from within, that sanctification process. So the fear of God's wrath is, the quenching, is quenched in the atoning blood of Christ, but as we walk with Christ in our sanctification, we begin to be washed by the living water of his word, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So in our sanctification, we should be repenting of sin more out of a love of Christ than a fear of God's wrath or hell. Also, our walk in God's grace should never be about what we can get away with and still be in the kingdom, if you will. But it should be about what I get to do to express my love for my Savior and for his kingdom. And that's something that sanctification does. It changes our view of what motivates us to serve God. 
We must not look at repentance as something we just do for our benefit, but something we desire to do to bring glory to God who died for us. I choose repentance to express my love for God and my hatred of my sin in order to draw closer to Christ, not to push me further from hell. That motive, I think, is important in our relationship with God. Now, of course, we want to be far from hell. But in Christ, we are as far from hell as we possibly can be. <laughs> I mean, is, our sins are as far from the east as from the west when we're in him. So I want to grow deeper in my love with Christ I, and find myself closer to his heart, for in that place there is great joy. Riding on the fringes, so to speak, of the kingdom, uh, always gazing at the world, will not bring joy. It will only bring covetousness, temptation, and compromise. So, so we don't need to understand, ultimately what I'm trying to get at is we don't need to understand what the consequences of our sin look like to be obedient to God. God's command for us should be enough because we love him. And yes, even in that, we still have a fear of God. As we draw closer to God, we still have a fear of God. So Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But we need to understand this idea of the fear of God. There are different categories of fear. Martin Luther made an important distinction concerning the fear of God. He distinguished between something that's called servile fear and filial fear. Uh, he described servi servile fear as th that kind of fear a prisoner has for his torturer. Okay, that's, that's a bad fear. That doesn't describe our relationship with God. Filial fear is the fear of a son who loves his father and does not want to offend him or let him down. It's a fear born out of respect. And when the Bible calls us to fear God, it is issuing a call to fear born out of reverence, awe, and adoration of God. It is, the, it is a respect of the highest magnitude. Filial, filial fear is the fear that should cause us as Christians to draw closer to God. Not the fear of his wrath, but the fear of not loving him or bringing him glory, which is our created purpose. We are created by God to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever. Those things go hand in hand. Um, anyway, the Ligonier website has a great article online about this distinction between fears. So if you have time, check that out. So why, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and place it in the center, in the midst of the Garden of Eden? This question has tremendous relevance to everything that I just said about what motivates us to be obedient to God. The purpose of the tree was to begin the work of God in creating a people who would truly love him for his glory. Because they have seen his holiness and also his great grace. Now some will ask, and some have asked, I know I asked, couldn't God have put this tree somewhere hidden and safe from human consumption? I'm, some erroneously try to answer that question by saying, well, there, there must have been some kind of other unmentioned natural function of the tree that was placed in the garden, uh, and that somehow was required for the Eden Paradise environment. But that's pure speculation, and really has no bearing, because God is God. Okay? He could have created a perfect environment that didn't require such a dangerous tree to be in its presence. 
I mean, this tree was not OSHA approved. <laughs> um, we have we have laws we have laws requiring fences to be put up around pools in ground pools. So shouldn't God have put up some barrier around this tree to protect Adam and Eve from and the human race from enduring such great suffering and death? Was God being negligent? Was he is he a bad father? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, that question misses the whole point that God has revealed to us in his word. God purposely placed that tree in the center of the garden. And as Mark pointed out last week, everything God does has intention and purpose. This, this idea that he put it there and accidentally we got exposed to it was not, is not a thing. God intended by his decree that that would happen. And even in the suffering that we endure, in this world, God has purpose and intent. There is meaning in all suffering. So when, when we hear about or experience the horrible things that happen in this world, everything that we pray for today, we can be comforted that in all of those things, in all of those circumstances, the sovereign God who reigns supreme over all creation has his purpose and intent in it. Though we don't maybe not see it or understand it. And scripture tells us this. Isaiah 45, 7, God speaking here says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is the sovereign God. There is no, as, as R.C. Sprawl used to like to say, there's no um, random molecule that's doing its own thing. It's all under God's control. Everything we pray for with regard to the people who are suffering in this world in some way, these are all situations that God has decreed would take place because he has a purpose and intent behind it all. Just as he had with placing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. Just as he had purpose in placing his son on the cross. Now, Some skeptics will say, well, I think God was trying to tempt Adam and Eve by placing that tree there. But scripture tells us that is false. That God does not tempt anyone. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God was not tempting Adam and Eve by placing that tree there. No, God does not tempt mankind, but he does test mankind. Psalm 26.2 says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Hebrews 11.17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested by God, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So God doesn't tempt, but he tests us. But what's the difference? <laughs> what's the difference between tempting and testing? Well, tempt, and this is important, temptation is done out of a motivation to bring a person down into sin. Temptation is done out of a motivation to drive them away from God. Okay, Satan tempts. That's his goal. To, to drag us down into sin, drive us away from God. Testing, when done by God, is done out of a motivation to raise a person out of sin and draw them closer to God. To show, him his heart, show them his heart. And it's important that we recognize that distinction because these categories get mixed a lot when we're talking about testing and tempting. 
When you take a test, you take it so that you can see where you stand in your understanding of the material you're being tested on. And upon the results of the test, we strive to do better in those areas where we see that we are weak. And we also seek help in those areas. In our failures, we learn valuable information and we gain valuable experience in areas where we were previously blinded. So tests are valuable. And when God tests us, he doesn't do it so he can know where we are at. He knows where we are at in our walk. He knows our hearts inside and out. He does it to show us, to reveal to us um, where we are and who we need in our walk. And when we go through difficult things in our lives, trials, persecutions, or whatnot, these are often tests that God has intentionally ordained for us to go through. Things that he has placed in the midst of our lives. That we may see within ourselves what God sees already. Whether it's a loss of a job, a broken relationship, a sickness, a catastrophic event, or even a temptation that God allows us to face. These are tests that God has decreed and placed in the midst of our lives, not unlike how he placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And if we react poorly to these tests, we know that we need growth. We need to be in prayer over these things. We need to be feeding upon his word and seeking counsel from mature fellow believers. And when we respond in faith to these trials and tests, then we are encouraged that God has done a great work in our hearts and we give him glory in the victories that we experience. So again, I ask, why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil placed in the garden? before sin ever came to the world. It was to provide Adam with a choice to obey his Lord who had given him life and placed him in this abundant paradise or for Adam to choose to be his own Lord um, and reject his creator. It was a test for Adam to show him where his heart was at. All Adam knew at that point was what God had blessed him with. Okay? He had not experienced not having those blessings in his life, so he had no ability to truly be thankful or appreciative for, of them because that's all, he's, all he knew. The placement of the tree was to show Adam that he didn't yet understand <clears throat> what disobedience to God's word would bring about. God had created his word uh, and everything with, had created with his word um, everything to perfection. And the introduction of imperfection would corrupt all creation. So it was to show Adam that he did not yet have a great appreciation for the grace of God and the holiness of God. The tree was placed there ultimately to raise Adam up and not just bring him down. It was to cause Adam to have a greater love for and awe of God. But see, even it relates to us. Before we can be truly raised up, we must be brought down. In Adam's free will, he chose to entertain the idea that he could go against what God had commanded him and raise himself up, not knowing his role, and thus he challenged God's authority. In God placing this tree in the garden and allowing Adam and Eve to sin, God was showing them and us 
how we cannot be God and that God alone is holy. God was showing Adam and he's showing us how we cannot be God and that God alone is holy. A test that mankind is still failing to this day. There's an entire religion that Kevin knows a lot about claiming to be a Christian denomination. Yet they teach that God was once a man like you and I, but he progressed to being a God out of his own righteousness to rule over his own planet. <laughs> this satanic religion teaches that you can become a God and teaches that the God we worship was once a man. I'm, of course, speaking of Mormonism, a religion that claims to believe in Jesus Christ. They claim to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but Mormons ultimately look to themselves and their own works of righteousness for their salvation. They preach a false Christ, they preach a false gospel, and are not Christian. But Mormonism isn't the only worldview wherein people try to raise themselves up to be God. When people attempt to redefine God's moral standards, they are rejecting God's authority and are, in effect, claiming to be God. I've spoken with many unbelievers wherein I ask them, what their moral authority actually is. And they oftentimes will say, myself. That, that is the, the core of the sin that Adam and Eve fell into. Satan uses the same three-step strategy to deceive people today that he used in the garden against Adam and Eve. He first causes us and them to question what God said. Did God actually say? Then he flat out rejects and contradicts what God says. And then he tells us and them that they can be God. That is the same strategy he's using to this day. Doubt God's word, contradict God's word, you are God. Now before I continue, let me make clear that the serpent that we're talking about in the garden was in fact Satan. Yes, it was a serpent that was speaking to them, but it was filled with the spirit of Satan or something like that. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon that was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, has thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That ancient serpent. That's in Revelation. In Ezekiel 28, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So that's not speaking to the king of Tyre per se, but the spirit that was indwelling him, that spirit of Satan who was in Eden, the garden of God. It goes on to say that he was an anointed cherub. So clearly, you know, the serpent that we're talking about in the garden was Satan. And he, his strategy is to first cause doubt with regard to what God said, saying to Eve, did God actually say it? And all, it all starts with an attack on the word of God, which is why it is so important for us to always rightly discern the scriptures, to know the scriptures and rightly discern them, that we would not be deceived by the lies of the enemy because he is actively trying to deceive, twisting the word of God. And this is why where all compromise in the church begins. Doubting God's word. Questioning what God said. Then the serpent flat out contradicted what God said, saying, 
that to Eve and Adam, they will not die if they eat from this tree. Let's remind ourselves what God said, going back to Genesis 2 again. Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, some may respond to that and say, Well, I guess the serpent was right, because Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day. They would, they would go on and live many, many hundreds of years after that. And this is how Satan can be so deceptive because his lies are shrouded in a thin layer of truth. True, Adam and Eve did live a long time after that. Um, and though they did not die physically that day, they most certainly died spiritually that day, being cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God. And in God's economy, the spiritual state of a person is eternally more, more important than their physical state. But even in, in the, their, their spiritual death that happened that day, their physical state was greatly affected as the death process began that day. Um, they were cut off from the tree of life. And this is why Paul uses the term dead, he uses the term dead to describe those who were still physically alive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's, we, it's important that we grasp what it means to be spiritually dead. Because this is what God is talking about when he said you would die that day to Adam and Eve. To be dead means there is no life. There is nothing. To be spiritually dead means that you are only alive in the flesh. All of what motivates you in life is of the flesh and not of the Spirit of God if you are spiritually dead. And that's important to recognize. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are spiritually dead, you cannot please God. I don't care how many good works you do. I don't care how many charities you contribute to. If you are in the flesh, you are spiritually dead. You cannot please God. It's not the Spirit of God that drives their motive. It's their, it's their own fleshly desires. And it's for their own glory. So even what the spiritually dead person considers to be a good deed is in reality like poop-filled pants to God. <laughs> to, for, to use a better term. And he, he says that in his scriptures. He says, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. <laughs> poop-filled pants. <laughs> So, yeah. so the spiritually dead person has no ability the spiritually dead person has no ability to respond to God in faith which is the only way that we can be pleasing to God is through faith so this spiritually dead state that came upon Adam and Eve the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that spiritually dead state has been passed on to every single descendant who was born of man and woman since then and this is the doctrine of original sin 
Many have said, well, that's not fair. Why do we have to suffer for Adam and Eve's sin? It was they, they did it, not us. And this, that question, that statement, assumes the possibility that we could have done better than Adam or Eve in the, in the garden. And the truth is that no one would have done any better than Adam other than the second Adam, God himself, when he came in, in the flesh. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. He is our federal head. Just as in Christ, we are found to be righteous. Though we, we could never have lived as Christ lived, in perfect sinlessness. So we are credited with his righteousness. Romans 5.17, a few verses after Romans 5.12. For if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen. And to bring up another theological issue, we read in the scriptures that Adam, like we've just talked about, is credited with the sin that brought the fall. Through Adam, all men die. That, he is credited with the original sin there. But how is that? When clearly Eve ate of the tree first. Why does Adam get blamed and not the wife? <laughs> well, we think of the first sin being that Eve ate the fruit. But the first sin was credited to Adam. Adam's sin that preceded Eve's was a sin of omission in that he did not intercede for his wife while she was being deceived. The scripture states in Genesis 3.6 that Adam was with her while this was happening. While the serpent was tempting and deceiving her, he stood there. Adam failed to step up into his role as the spiritual leader in the home with the knowledge that God had given him and, and, and give that knowledge to his wife and step in for his wife when she was being deceived. Paul alludes to this application in 1 Timothy 2.12, very controversial passage, when he makes the case for the authoritative roles that God has established in the church and in the home. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Eve was deceived because Adam refused to walk in his God-given role to lead her. Instead, he just went along with her, giving in the deception. And that's what Paul said. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what was going on. Eve was not deceived because just being a woman, she was more easily deceived. Some teach that women, women by nature are more easily deceived. I don't think that's what scripture is saying. I've known many women who are much more spiritually mature and scripturally uh, uh, able to expound the scriptures much better than certain men. Um, so I don't think that's what God is talking about with regards to ability. No, Eve was deceived because Adam failed to lead her and teach her and step up in his God-given role. So God has called man to lead. That's this designated role. Not because of his ability, but because God determined that role. And he called Adam to refute the lies of Satan, of, of, of the serpent. And he calls man to do the same today. 
This doesn't excuse Eve as she still disobeyed God, but Adam's sin was greater for he knew the extent of his rebellion. And Paul explains that Adam was not deceived. He knew the serpent was lying. But instead of leading his wife, he just went along with her. And think about that application with certain leaders in the church today who choose to remain silent on hot-button issues and allow Satan to deceive when they know better. Because they don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. We don't want to cause anybody to be leaving the church and not giving their tithe anymore. Um, whether it be topics like wokeness, the LGBTQ agenda, social justice issues, egalitarianism, the role of the church in politics, these are all issues you can't talk about from the pulpit because people might get uncomfortable. And many pastors just go along with the deceptions that are being propagated by Satan in these issues so their congregants don't feel uncomfortable. So this, this is something that the church has to recognize and speak up on when these issues are taught, are preached in society and go against what God's word says. So we need to, re we need to recognize those things. Many pastors just will just go along with that. Anyway, I can go off all day on that one. Anyway, Adam was held accountable for original sin, not Eve. So Paul was making the case here in, in, in 1 Timothy that God's will is that men are in the role of authority in teaching the things of God to the church. As Adam was, because Adam was held accountable for that original sin. But then the serpent lied to Eve, okay? Saying that they will be like God. In what way would they be like God? Knowing good and evil. And what does that mean? Um, well, I think the scriptures teach that she, knowing good and evil is another way of saying that you can define for yourself what good and evil is. So is this what is being truly meant here, or was Moses just speaking about Adam and Eve experiencing good and evil? So we need to make that distinction. The context of the statement tells us what is meant here. You see, just experiencing good and evil is not exclusively an attribute of God. So that alone wouldn't make you like God. Because creation experiences good and evil every day, but that doesn't make us like God. But the ability, the ability to, to truly define and to determine for yourself what is good and what is evil, that is exclusively an attribute of God. Therefore, if one could be given this knowledge, they would be like God in that aspect, and that would be something that would be desirable. That would be something that could be a temptation. So by recognizing this, we can understand the essence of the temptation that Satan brought forth was a temptation to say you can be like God because you can determine what is right and what is wrong. You can create your own moral standard. The temptation of idolatry, which is at the core of all rebellion against God. And we see this throughout all of society, where moral standards are being challenged and changed all the time. But the amazing aspect of God's revelation to us is that despite our feeble attempts at trying to replace God with ourselves, despite that, God sent his son who willingly took upon himself the wrath that we all deserve for sin. And on top of that, he credits our account with the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
so that one day we will again have access to the tree of life and live forever in the presence of God in paradise. And in that state, after going through everything that we've experienced in this life and seeing the glory of God and, and, and our fall and him redeeming us and, and letting us go down, but then bringing us back up so that we can recognize the awe and the glory and the grace of God, such a deception that was brought forth on Adam could never again happen and separate us from God because we have beheld his glory, because we have beheld his grace which is all something that he has done in us. So that is a long way of talking about the purpose behind the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To, to bring forth a motive for us to recognize in our, we failed in our free will, but he set us free from the bondage of sin so that now we can, in the freedom that we endure in Christ, just give him a tremendous thanks and praise because we know we deserve eternal condemnation. And yet we are going to stand in his presence for eternity, worshiping him in a sinless paradise, as was intended from the beginning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord God, for this account, this historic account of the fall of man and what we can learn from it and how even then, you had, the mind, you had in your mind that you would take on human flesh, that you would live the perfect life that Adam was supposed to live but didn't, that we are supposed to live but don't, <laughs> but Christ did. And in that we, we have no, we can't touch your glory. In that we give you all glory. And we thank you, Lord, for the abundant grace of revealing that to us taking out that heart of stone, putting in that heart of flesh and drawing us unto you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue that sanctifying work through the living water of your word where you are changing our motives to draw closer to you more and more out of a love of who you are and a love of what you've done, Lord. And less and less because we're afraid of the consequences, but that we would truly recognize our salvation in Christ and be free in that and that abundant grace. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. I thank you for all that you've brought here today in this fellowship. I pray you bless them and hide your word in their hearts. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.